Welcome to FYI, the Public Library's podcast. I'm Kathleen Hughes, Manager of Publications for the Public Library Association. Our guest today is Joel A. Nichols. Joel is an Administrator for Data Strategy and Evaluation in the Strategic Initiatives Department at the Free Library of Philadelphia, where he previously worked as a children's librarian and branch manager. He is the author of Teaching Internet Basics, The Can-Do Guide, and iPads in the Library, both published by Libraries Unlimited. Joel also is the author of the winner in this year's Public Libraries Magazine Feature Article Contest for the article, Serving All Families in a Queer and Genderqueer Way, which you can read over at www.publiclibrariesonline.org. Welcome, Joel, and congratulations on winning the Feature Article Contest. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind the title, Serving All Families in a Queer and Genderqueer Way? I was working as a children's librarian at our Parkway Central branch. I started thinking about how best to serve kids who might be queer or kids who are so young that you really had no idea what they were going to be, that they might end up queer or trans. And I really started thinking about rather than a specialized service or some kind of service that you only enact when you suspect a kid or a family might be queer or you know, rather that it becomes sort of a default way of interacting with everybody. And so this notion that we could serve all kids better by serving them in a queer way was kind of the genesis for, for the idea behind that article. And the article was published actually in January of 2016. Have there been any, any noticeable improvements since that time? I think there probably has been improvement in the sense that a lot more people are aware and are talking about this. A lot more people are aware of the real harm that is done to gay, queer, and trans kids who you know, are denied the right to use the right bathroom, are bullied because of who they are, who, you know, how they present their gender. I mean, I think since Tyler Clementi committed suicide, a lot more people have realized that bullying about queerness really equals real harm for people. In the library world, we've all been talking much more about intersectionality and thinking a lot about multiple oppressions and about being of color, being a woman, being queer, all affect everyone's experience very differently. And so I think based on the books that won um, all the Youth Media Awards this year, like we are making strides and improvements in in engaging in intersectionality and engaging in multiple oppressions and really trying to work through that. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm worried because of what's happening, but I also think that um, we're doing better than we were. Can you talk a little bit about th- what the barriers are? One of the queer theory bent of this paper is that an organization system itself is inherently not queer. So an an organizational system is inherently a power structure or, you know, um, a development of a power structure. Giving one thing one Dewey call number and and someone else wanting to give it a different Dewey call number, like that tension there sort of is inherently problematic when you're trying to, to be multiple things and you're trying to exist, you know, in multiple identities or um, exist sort of in, in a, you know, quote unquote alternative identity or like in a, um, sort of an emergent identity that hasn't been recognized by the, the power systems. I had a, a queer studies professor in college who talked about how when he was a teenager, he like went to the library and looked up homosexuality as a subject term. Homosexuality as a subject term was medicalized for a very long time. All sort of speaks to one of those barriers. I think another barrier for children's services in particular is just that people freak out uh, around kids and queerness. So even when we're talking about kids who themselves identify as trans or queer or gay or bi or lesbian, people have a hard time dealing with it. A lot of people don't want to recognize that, you know, kids are coming out earlier and earlier and 
that increased representation has made it possible for kids to put a name to things that they might not have been able to as easily in previous generations. Doctors are recognizing more and more that kind of the earlier a kid starts transitioning and gets the proper medical and emotional and social support, the more healthy everyone is. That's a real challenge. We at the Free Library, we are running a, a series of of events this month, um, Free Library of Pride, we were first calling it 30 Days of Gay because we thought it was sort of catchy and we had to catch ourselves. We found that saying gay wasn't that inclusive. People who don't identify with the word gay, who do identify with other kinds of queer and genderqueer identities say, like, that's not inclusive, that doesn't include us, let's change the name. And on the other hand, we have had parents um, in some of our neighborhood libraries say, I don't want my kid to see a flyer with the word gay on it. The latter half of that story indicates to me that we still have a long way to go and that we need to keep having, um, you know, Free Library of Pride events and drag queen story times around the country and, and other kinds of programs for kids and families who, you know, might be queer or who know queer people. Because we still got, you know, in 2000. 17 in one of the largest cities in, in the country, we've got parents saying literally the word gay is not appropriate for my kid to see. So language is an important part of providing equitable service to the LGBTQ community. What are some of the terms, definitions, and concepts that listeners should become familiar with? And can you talk a little bit about the idea of genderqueer? I tend to use queer itself as sort of an umbrella term that um, in my mind means all the other um, initials in the acronym. So lesbian, bisexual, gay, trans, asexual, intersexual, questioning. I mean, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of um, letters. Sometimes when you you know sometimes people write it out as quilt bag in order to accommodate all those letters. Queer with a small Q can mean all of those things in an umbrella way. I think it's really important for people to remember that there's a difference between biological sex and gender, and that it's also important for people to realize that um, and really think about what it means that there really are more than two genders, that that queer people nowadays, genderqueer people, non-binary people, might not, de- might not define themselves as either male or female, or they might identify themselves as both or something else entirely. You can be anywhere on the spectrum of demonstrating your gendered characteristics and be somewhere else entirely on the spectrum of who you're attracted to. It's not as much about vocabulary. I think your question is um, right on and interesting is that it's more about language and, and understanding that there is this much more complicated language than just male, female, gay, straight. I, I think in my experience, it's okay to engage in that language to try to figure out where people are comfortable or not. I, I have colleagues who have names like Chris or Jamie, who constantly get a Mr. or a Ms. in an email when it doesn't apply to them because people just don't know because those names um, can traditionally be either for men or women. This notion where, like, maybe it's okay not to address someone in an email or Mr. or Ms., maybe it's just okay to say, like, dear Kathleen Hughes with no salutation because you're not really sure. Um, engaging in the language that way, I think, is kind of the, one of the most useful ways of doing it. And you can always ask people, too, like, how would you prefer to be referred to? Like, what would you like to be addressed by? And that was my next question. Did you have any advice for pronouns? Since the 90s, people have used alternate pronouns like here and zir to indicate a trans or non-binary binary, excuse me, um, identity. I will say that I think the most useful thing that public librarians can do, especially children's librarians, is start getting in the habit of using they as a singular pronoun so you're not using he or she, and that when you're referring to someone whose pronouns you might not know or whose gender identity you might not be able to recognize based on how they look or how they sound, that it's okay to use they. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's been even a process for me over the last 
several years of saying they is or they call or something. Uh, they, uh, you know, saying they is with a singular verb is really um, can be disorienting at first. But once you get used to it, it's really not that weird. And it really just gives you wiggle room for not offend anybody, A, to B, maybe actually please somebody a lot who prefers to go by they in the third person. And, you know, it just gives you infinite variability. I think a lot of people are worried if you've ever been misgendered or if you've ever misgendered someone, um, you're usually pretty kind of embarrassed and you, you feel like the other person must be really embarrassed too. In my experience, sort of defaulting to using they in the third person um, works really well. If you really think about it, we use it all the time in colloquial English. Like if somebody says, you got a call this morning. You might say, did they leave a name? Did they leave their name? Did they? Call, what time did they call? And that all sounds really normal to us because we acknowledge that, you know, we don't know the gender of that person and we kind of don't need to know. So if we can shift that frame to realizing that we also don't need to know the gender of the person when we say to our colleague, oh, could you go show them where the blah, blah, blah books are? That would be a lot easier. And what are some things libraries can do to make sure that their libraries are being inclusive? You can Stop in story time ever saying boys and girls. You can always say something like, welcome friends, welcome little readers, blah, blah, blah. It can be really alienating to hear welcome boys and girls. If you don't feel like you're a boy or a girl, or if you people tell you you're a boy but you feel like a girl, it can just sort of add anxiety to the, the life of a kid in a way that I don't think any children's librarian really wants to do. At the same time, I always tried to disengage and avoid um, parents who are asking for boy books or girl books. And I kind of came up with this line, like, we, we don't think of books here as boy and girl books. Like, that's not how it works. Like, I'm going to show you a bunch of books that you like. You take your time and maybe pick some that you'd like to read. Librarians in their selection and policies can have explicit statements around diversity and inclusion that include gender and sexuality. They can make sure that they're buying the highest quality stuff. I mean, the the book list generated by the um, GLBTRT roundtable of ALA. I'm a member of their board in terms of disclosure, um, but I'm very happy to promote them even if I were not a member of their board um, because they provide amazing professional resources for librarians, public and academics, and special at all age levels, including tons of book lists and resource lists. If you're making sure that it's part of your policy to buy the positively reviewed queer and trans picture books, the gender variant picture books, and have them in your collection, that's, you know, I think your patrons will find them useful. The other thing is that I would encourage library libraries to interfile those books with the regular picture books. I, in my own system, too often those things get put in sort of a parenting teacher, parent-teacher collection, sort of special topics collection. You know, it's by it's right near the books where like your pet has died and your parents are divorced and your parents are incarcerated and all the kind of like books that you only you only people only ask for when something's wrong. So, you know, I'm I'm a queer person, obviously. Um and I have a kid. My boyfriend and I have a four year old and I think, you know, as somebody who wants to have a bunch of queer picture books around for my four year old, like I don't necessarily want to walk to the special sections, the like all the like negative life topic sections get those books. And I'm not sure that like, you know, if I were experiencing incarceration in my immediate family, I'm not sure I'd want to walk to that section to, to get those books either. So I think thinking about a way of, of making your collection more integrated and less kind of called out by special topics. How can libraries move towards gender neutral bathrooms and also policies in general that encourage or promote gender diversity? I would point again to the um, GLBT roundtable of ALA on the website. 
there's a whole page about bathroom resources that have really excellent um, documentation and advice and sort of interpretation of laws and useful language and documentation if you're dealing with a board of directors or you're dealing with an administrator. So anyone interested should certainly check out those resources. And as far as library policy and policy setting, to make sure the policies reflect the ideals of gender diversity representation, where should we be looking? There are no right answers to this. I mean, my anecdote about the pushback we got kind of from both sides about the naming something gay at, at my library um, shows how much this ha- you have to be in conversation with a variety of people for that. The best resources for them might be something like researching through GLAD or um, NLGTS, the National Task Force. Does any library policy come to mind that might get in the way of gender diversity representation? Some library policies that, in my experience, have sort of directly harmed mm-hmm. queer and trans and gender right. queer people mm-hmm. are um, having to declare a gender on the library card. Right. We're getting rid of gender on our library card. Generally, for humans, they're going to be about half men and about half women, a handful of people who might identify in a different way. Maybe we don't need to collect that anymore. Another one, I think, would be what kind of ID you require for your library card application and and whether or not, like, if, you're, if your physical appearance matches um, uh, a male identity, but your ID has a female name, how much trouble you're going to get at the desk. In some states, it can be really hard for trans people to change their names or get new identification or prohibitively expensive to do so. So plenty of people have IDs that don't really match the way they look. You should have some policies that help address that and help train your staff to engage in that in a, in a sensitive way so people are not being denied library use because they don't look like their ID. What are you working on now? Anything exciting coming down the pike? I just published a third book with Libraries Unlimited, actually, called Out of This World Library Programs. And it's about using science fiction and speculative fiction to promote reading and do really fun programs for teens and young adults and some adult programs as well. And there's a bunch of examples of feminists and people of color and queer science fiction in there. That was a lot of great information. Thank you, Joel. For more information on this topic, check out Joel's Public Library's feature article, Serving All Families in a Queer and Genderqueer Way, which you can read over at www.publiclibrariesonline.org. 